Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Melissa Clay, communications specialist. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Jane Brown and Pat Pakila, co-facilitators of the IAH's new retired faculty program. They discuss their achievements as professors in their respective fields and the potential impact of retired faculty on campus and in the Chapel Hill community. I'm Jane Brown. I was in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, now known as the School of Media and Journalism, for 35 years. I was also chair of the faculty and have been a fellow here at IAH in both the leadership group and as a regular fellow, too. And you're the associate director of the leadership program as well. I was, yes. How long did you do that? Five years I did that, yeah. Was that at the beginning, the Mm -hmm. very beginning? Yes, I was in the first class, and then I became the facilitator. I'm Pat Pakula. I retired four years ago as professor of biology and also director of the offices of the university's office for undergraduate research. I was associate dean for that. And I was an IH fellow in 2006, and Jane was the co-facilitator of my academic leadership group. So we're very happy to be back together again. We are. (laughs) Yes. And so just to let everyone know, you two are right now co-facilitating a pilot year of our new retired faculty program. Can you talk a little bit about the origins of that program and what purpose does it serve here on campus and here at the IAH? I think the original idea came from the Institute and then the Retired Faculty Association, with which Pat is affiliated, said let's partner about that and let's see if we can make this happen. So we started by having I think six or seven of us got together and for about six months brainstormed about what this might look like. What has been one of the more surprising factors or unanticipated factors of of running this seminar? For We're now in the second semester of it. I'd say one of the gifts that the Institute has given us is parking, accessible (laughs) parking. (laughs) That turns out to be one of the major problems for retired faculty to come back onto campus. The other thing we love is that we have a place on campus. And we had originally thought we were going to be meeting at the Friday Center, but it's even better to have presence on campus. And that is one of the goals of the seminar, is to sort of reassert retired faculty on campus. And what what would be the importance of that? What's the the push for that? Well, I guess it also gets back to your question about surprises. Um, Really, the surprise is that we were asked to do this at all because (laughs) retired faculty are basically invisible. Um, One minute, you're important and called upon for all kinds of things, and the next minute, uh, the next day when you wake up and you're retired, you have fallen off everyone's radar. So the notion that we would be asked by the IH, which can work magic in any realm it chooses, to develop this pilot uh, was just a dream come true for me. Now, in the seminar, you often speak with the participants about projects and continuing, either continuing their research or delving into other projects that maybe you weren't able to do when you were working. What kind of projects motivate you right now? Could I actually talk about co-facilitating yeah, the seminar? Because this is actually really, really is a, a big, important project for me right now. And what I'd like to do, if I could, is try to define what I've 
referred to many times as IAH magic. Okay. Because I think that IAH works magic. Um, so there are basically three elements that have all been really important to the seminar also so far, and that is an ability to create community. That's the first important thing. So taking people who don't know each other at all and thinking hard about what it takes to have people come to trust each other. How much of their stories do they really need to know before they can delve really deeply and actually offer suggestions, help, advice, and receive them as well, which can be at the heart of an ongoing um, community. And it's just a thrill to, to watch that uh, emerge from the groups that we've had so far. I think the second thing is appreciation. So our culture, our university... <laughs> really lacks a culture of appreciation, and IH is fabulous at that. So people selected for these various programs know they're appreciated right away, but then parking, Jane mentioned, lunches, books, all these, I mean, sort of tangible examples of this, but it's also the way that people come to appreciate each other, which, of course, strengthens community. And then the third, which gets to your um, original question, is inquiry. So mm -hmm. it's not that like all of this is laid out for you, just for you to enjoy a nice lunch with some friends. There's, there's a deeper, a deeper uh, goal, a deeper, well, what are we here for? Well, how can we help? What, what are the missing pieces that a group such as a retired faculty could, in fact, um, fulfill? And I think... The answer is all different directions. And so the ways the seminar has gone is Jane created this, um, create a life you love in retirement. And I'm the one sort of nudging, well, doesn't that include UNC Chapel? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and kind of if not, why not? And if that means, oh, those are problems that, that one needs to solve. And you can probably see that all three of these play on each other. So when you're appreciated, yes, you're willing to inquire, yes, you're willing to help out, but then that makes you feel more appreciated when your ideas are listened to, and that strengthens the community, which means you know more and you're able to inquire more deeply, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those three elements are unique at UNC Chapel Hill, and I feel so blessed to have been a part of it. Beautifully said. And I th the, the community part always worked for me in the leadership program and in the regular fellows program and we see it happening again where people from all across campus some who have never seen each other before are sharing personal stories and their fears about retirement as well as their desires and hopes and it's really a wonderful thing so we're only three weeks into this one already and they're so intimate already how do you develop that as a facilitator because I've always uh, I see it happen but it's hard to kind of define how how you can initiate that honesty, that comfortability to really just kind of open up a group and really make it special and, and meaningful experience. Part of it is the participants, whether they're willing to do that. <laughs> right. And then I think strategic questions where they ask to go a little deeper mm -hmm. and to um, also reflect personally. So we have readings to stimulate ideas and then we're always asking them to reflect on how do those readings relate to their lives. And that and we also have a ground rule of confidentiality. So whatever gets said in that room stays in the room. Can I add to that? Yes. Jane is 
absolutely a brilliant facilitator. (laughs) And I would say that one of your gifts is you listen so carefully. And of everything that's being said, you can pick the exact element and embellish it a bit and do exactly what you just said, help that person take that point and go even deeper than they might even imagine that Hmm. they could do themselves. But to me, it all starts with listening. You listen with your whole person. It's just (laughs) phenomenal to be in the room while it's happening. Well, thank you. As long as we're on this love fest, I want to say (laughs) it's been a lot of fun facilitating with Pat because she has fabulous ideas, and she introduced the word inquiry. And she's so gifted about making a conversation follow a point and and be a matter of inquiry. That's what I think of that in that room. Part of the magic in the room is we're in a conversation for inquiry. And it is a conversation, and she has great ideas about how to generate that. So, like, next week we're going to do a role play. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's a little nervous about it. <laughs> but it's so it always it works. We've done it before. Yeah. And... And they have a lot of fun talking about when they actually made the decision to retire and talking with other people about it. And it gets to be very fun. You mentioned readings earlier, and we asked this of pretty much all our uh, interviewees. Uh, What's a book that changed your life? Mine was Ralph Nader, Unsafe at Any Speed. (laughs) (laughs) Early, early on. I think it was in seventh grade or something like that. And I just loved that he was taking, that scientifically taking on a major corporation and a car that everyone considered very cool at the time, the Corvair, and was unpacking how unsafe it was. And it, it, it really sparked my interest in, oh, we could use, it was like we could use science to make a difference in the world. How did you get your hands on that book? I had a great, great... I had some hippie teachers. Okay, awesome. (laughs) That always helps. (laughs) Well, my example is more recent. It's a book called Bringing Nature Home by Doug Ptolemy. It's a book that basically explains how all of our landscaping is working to our disadvantage in that we're putting in uh, exotic plants to which insects are not adapted. So our plants serve to be something that we like to look at, but Mm -hmm. they are not food sources for caterpillars, meaning they're not birds around because there's no caterpillars for them to feed their young, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we tend to think of our responsibilities to the earth, certainly in terms of climate change and carbon and all of that. But if we think about wildlife at all, we think about wild places and forests and parks and et cetera. But the point of this book is that if we each took care of just our little tiny plots, those of us in houses, we we could really basically do far more and solve the problem in terms of niche diversity and bringing back birds, bringing back wildlife, bringing back that whole chain of life. And this all starts with growing native plants. I mean, that is just like the simplest thing in the world to think about. And so... Um, so, yeah, it really has caused a lot of, oh, my gosh, I sure wish I had known this 20 years ago, sorts of thoughts. When and, you were planting your yard. Exactly, <laughs> and, and uh, appreciation of a Japanese-inspired garden. That Yes, okay, it's all right to have these plants. Those are not going to be the food sources. But other places um, can, can be, and just taking that as a, um, 
an action item, if you will, and trying to do as much as I can on that. Jane, where did, where did you grow up? I grew up on a dairy farm in Maryland. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And there's still some hippie teachers around there. Okay. <laughs> there were. Yeah. Well, I, I, I figure I grew up at just the best time. I was, I was 18 in 1968. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. You couldn't get better than that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, so I was there, right, for the new women's movement, for the anti-war movement, for civil rights. Uh, right at the beginning when institutions were interested in accepting women and seeing how women could fit in. And mm-hmm. so it was it was a heady, fabulous time to be young. And where did mm-hmm. you do your undergraduate work? University of Kentucky. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was and, and since I was an out of state student and then I had to be an an outside agitator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was one of the campus radicals. And helped set up a child care center and was a managing editor of the newspaper and was a leader on campus around uh, women's rights mostly. How about you, Pat? So I was born in southern New Jersey and my family moved to Connecticut when I was in high school. And I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, um, actually as an undergrad, but Jane, you came later. Is that I right? went yeah, as, yeah, a as a PhD student, yeah. Student. So yeah, it was definitely exciting times. Did you always know you were, wanted to be a scientist? Uh, no. I went to Madison thinking I would be an international relations major, hmm. um, but that meant you had to learn a language uh, oh, yeah. other than English, and so French <laughs> was my high school language, so I went ahead with French, and it was just so tedious and boring and horrible, uh, whereas chemistry You're was You're saying this to a easy. former Spanish teacher. <laughs> <laughs> And I, think they, I think they do it better now than oh, they did maybe, when I was maybe. growing up. Yeah. When we were growing up. No, I think think of what undergrads here get to do in French classes mm-hmm. when they read Moliere. They actually get to go do research and have a poster session at the end of their class on the these pamphlets that criticize the monarchy and what were the parallels in oh. Moliere's plays. Like, oh, my gosh, I might be a diplomat today if I'd had a course <laughs> like that. But yeah. instead, it was just awful, and I hated it. And so what did I like? Well... The science stuff seemed pretty good, um, and I ended up, I was in a program called Inter, Integrated Liberal Studies, which had courses that interrelated, and that was all great, but the science courses were outside of that, so, and I had to meet a science requirement, so I looked down, and, well, they were, oh gosh, I needed something in biology, either botany or zoology. Well, botany, back in the day, like, who would study botany? I mean, I had no, of course, you don't know what you don't know at that age. Um, zoology, you'd have to cut up things and it would cause pain to a creature and that was uh, really going to be horrible. But there was this course called Developmental Biology. That's those embryos. I'm like, oh, I remember that from high school. I, I sort of like that. And went along and it was actually, it turned out to be a graduate level course, which I didn't know, but I sat in the back of the room, this brilliant professor who walked up and down in the front smoking his pipe and about two words would come out of his mouth every ten minutes because he just wanted it to be exactly correct in terms of what conclusions could we draw and what information would we need and how could we go about getting the next set of information that we what's the most important thing to look at next etc it was basically experimental design and i just uh-huh. filled notebooks with this this was just fabulously interesting huh. and he wrote on a blue book i still have please come and see me after Ooh. the midterm exam uh-huh. and just 
took me under his wing and oh. changed my life. It was just absolutely That's fabulous. Great. And I got a chance to thank him for it. That often never happens. Yes. But um, I was invited to a symposium, and he came in Madison, and he came. Was it for uh, him? No, it uh-huh. was just a uh, something where a topic that my research was involved in. And so I took the, seeing him in the front row, I took the opportunity to thank him, mm-hmm. which was really fun. Great. Did you have a course or a professor that kind of launched you into your career path? Oh, or? yes. There was a young man who had just come to the University of Kentucky from Wisconsin. Oh, okay. And I did a an independent study with him in my senior year. And it was just so much fun. And it was about research. And it was the first time I had done research in this and had this sense of, oh, you could ask a question and then pursue it. And at the time, I thought I was going to be a journalist. But I was. it was the anti-war movement, and I went to a faculty council meeting. This is kind of <laughs> ironic, because ultimately I became chair of the faculty here. But I found it to be the most deadly, awful meeting I'd ever been to. And as an undergraduate, I had no idea what they were talking about and why they were debating so long about whether they as faculty should join the students on the picket lines or or shut down the university. I I thought, of course they should. Why can they still be debating this? (laughs) (laughs) And and then I, I realized that as a journalist, I was supposed to write about that anyway, even though I didn't really understand it, and I knew I didn't understand it. And then, but with research, I could take as long as I wanted to, as long as it took to get to the answer before I had to write about it. And that was the difference. So that sold me. I wanted to do research instead of daily journalism, which made me write on a deadline about stuff I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Just had to get it out there. Yeah. What would be a highlight of your academic career here at UNC? I was one of the first people to get an NIH grant from a school of journalism in the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and it was a culmination of years of research, and then I was able to get funding for a five-year NIH project. And what was that project? It was about how do adolescents learn about sexuality from the media. Oh, wow. And we found that they do learn about sex from the media, and it does encourage them to have intercourse earlier than they might otherwise. And we used the skills of my colleagues in the journalism school to write press releases and get media coverage of the results of that study. And then it actually did have some effect on it created more what we call sexually responsible portrayals in media for adolescents. And what what time period was that? It was the early 2000s. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I guess I have two answers to this. Um, the first is a scientific achievement of heading a collaborative project that involved, I guess, almost 25 co-authors and getting our paper published on the cover of one of the premier journals in the country, which Whoa. was just really very exciting. Wow. I loved it so much, I got a big poster made of it and put it up on my office yeah. <laughs> window should. looking out. It was just really, really cool. But the other was uh, stemmed from my part-time administrative role uh, to try to engage undergraduates in what I saw as the best aspects of a university, which is the chance to 
inquire, do research, make discoveries, i.e. what we love and what keeps us here. It seemed to me there was this big firewall that was separating the undergrads from all the good stuff. And so <laughs> I uh, started, as I mentioned before, the, the Office for Undergraduate Research. And by the end of my 14 years, we had really scaled these experiences to reach thousands and thousands of students in all majors across campus. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure working with you on this uh, program, the Retired Faculty Program. And I really appreciate your time to do this interview as well. Well, we should mention you and thank you because you have been here th since the inception as well, taking excellent notes right. and offering great ideas. You you've suggested one of the books that we were going to use that we have used and so thank you so much. It's just been extraordinary the kind of support you've given us. Well, I've enjoyed being in on the room and kind of being a fly on the wall in the in the whole process. <laughs> Does it make you want to retire? Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. All right, thank you very much. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.